Chapter 9 of Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin by Elizabeth Robbins Pennell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Imlay's Desertion, 1794 to 1795. Unfortunately, as a rule, the traveller on life's journey has but as short a time to stay in the pleasant green resting places as the wanderer through the desert. In September, Mary followed Imlay to Paris, but before the end of the month he had bidden her farewell and had gone to London. Against the fascination of money-making her charms had little chance. His estrangement dates from this separation. When Mary met him again, he had forgotten love and honor and had virtually deserted her. While her affection became stronger, his weakened until finally it perished altogether. Her confidence in him, however, was confirmed by the months spent at Havre, and she little dreamed his departure was the prelude to their final parting. For a time she was lighter-hearted than she had ever been before while he was away. The memory of her late happiness reassured her. Her little girl was an unceasing source of joy, and she never tired of writing to Imlay about her. Her maternal tenderness overflows in her letters. She said in one of them, not doubting his interest to be as great as hers, "'You will want to be told over and over again,' that our little Hercules is quite recovered. Besides looking at me, there are three other things which delight her. To ride in a coach, to look at a scarlet waistcoat, and hear loud music. Yesterday at the fete she enjoyed the two latter, but to honor J. J. Rousseau, I intend to give her a sash, the first she has ever had round her. In a second she writes, I have been playing and laughing with the little girl so long that I cannot take up my pen to address you without emotion. Pressing her to my bosom, she looked so like you, entre nous, your best looks, for I do not admire your commercial face. Every nerve seemed to vibrate to her touch, and I began to think that there was something in the assertion of man and wife being one, for you seemed to pervade my whole frame, quickening the beat of my heart and lending me the sympathetic tears you excited. As the devout go to pilgrimage, to places once sanctified by the presence of a departed saint, so she visited alone the haunts of the early days of their love, living over again the incidents which had made them sacred. My imagination, she wrote to him, chooses to ramble back to the barrier with you, or to see you coming to meet me and my basket of grapes. With what pleasure do I recollect your looks and words when I have been sitting on the window regarding the waving corn? She begged him to bring back his barrier face as she thus fondly recalled their interviews at the barrier. She told him of a night passed at Saint-Germain in the very room which had once been theirs and glowing with these recollections. She warned him that if he should return changed in aught, she would fly from him to cherish remembrances which must be ever dear to her. 
Occasionally a little humorous pleasantry interrupted the more tender outpourings in her letters. On the 26th of October, Imlay, having now been absent for over a month, she writes, I have almost charmed a judge of the tribunal, R., who, though I should not have thought it possible, has humanity, if not beaucoup d'esprit. But let me tell you, if you do not make haste back, I shall be half in love with the author of the Marseillaise, who is a handsome man, a little too broad-faced or so, and plays sweetly on the violin. What do you say to this threat? Why, entre nous, I like to give way to a sprightly vein when writing to you. The devil, you know, is proverbially said to be in a good humor when he is pleased. Many of her old friends in the capital had been numbered among the children devoured by the insatiable monster. A few, however, were still left, and she seems to have made new ones and to have again gone into Parisian society. The condition of affairs was more conducive to social pleasures than it had been the year before. Robespierre was dead. There were others besides Mary who feared the last flap of the tail of the beast, but as a rule, the people, now the reaction had come, were overconfident, and the season was one of merrymaking. There were fetes and balls, even mourning for the dead became the signal for rejoicing, and gay Parisians, their arms tied with crepe, danced to the memory of the victims of the late national delirium. The reign of terror was over, but so was Mary's happiness. Public order was partly restored, but her own short-lived peace was rudely interrupted. Imlay in London became more absorbed in his immediate affairs, a fact which he could not conceal in his letters, and Mary realized that compared to business, she was of little or no importance to him. She expostulated earnestly with him on the folly of allowing money cares and ambitions to preoccupy him. She sincerely sympathized with him in his disappointments, but she could not understand his willingness to sacrifice sentiment and affection to sordid cares. It appears to me absurd, she told him, to waste life in preparing to live. But by degrees the dark shades increased, until they had completely blotted out the light made by the past. Imlay's letters were fewer and shorter, more taken up with business and less concerned with her. Ought she to endure his indifference, or ought she to separate from him forever, was the question which now tortured her. She had tasted the higher pleasures, and the present pain was intense in proportion. Her letters became mournful as dirges. Once, but only once, the light shone again. On the 15th of January, she received a kind letter from Imlay, and her anger died away. It is pleasant to forgive those we love, she said to him simply, but it was followed by his usual hasty business notes, or by complete silence, and henceforward she knew hope only by name. Her old habit of seeing everything from the dark side returned. She could not find one redeeming point in his conduct. Despair seized her soul. Other discomforts contributed their share to her burden. A severe cold had settled upon her lungs, 
and she imagined she was in a galloping consumption. Her lodgings were not very convenient, but she had put up with them, waiting day by day for Imlay's return. Weary of her life, as Job was of his, she, like him, spake out in the bitterness of her soul. Her letters from this time on are written from the very valley of the shadow of death. Grief sometimes makes men strong. Mary's stimulated her into a determination to break her connection with Imlay and to live for her child alone. She would remain in Paris and superintend Fanny's education. She had already been able to labor for herself, and there was no reason why she should not do it again. Until she settled upon the means of support to be adopted, she would borrow money from her friends. Anything was better than to live at Imlay's expense. As for him, such a course would probably be a relief, and certainly it would do him no harm. As I never concealed the nature of my connection with you, she wrote to him, your reputation will not suffer. But her plans, for some reason, did not meet with his approval. He was tired of her, and yet he seems to have been ashamed to confess his inconstancy. At one moment he wrote that he was coming to Paris. At the next he bade her meet him in London. But no mention was made of the farm in America. The excitement of commerce proved more alluring than the peace of country life. His shilly-shallying unnerved Mary. Positive desertion would have been easier to bear. The child was now the strongest bond of union between them. For her sake, she felt the necessity of continuing to live with Imley as long as possible, though his love was dead. Therefore, when he wrote definitely that he would like her to come to him, since he could not leave his business to go to her, she relinquished her intentions of remaining alone in France with Fanny and set out at once for London. She could hardly have passed through Havre without feeling the bitter contrast between her happiness of the year before and her present hopelessness. I sit lost in thought, she wrote to Imlay, looking at the sea, and tears rush into my eyes when I find that I am cherishing any fond expectations. I have indeed been so unhappy this winter, I find it as difficult to acquire fresh hopes as to regain tranquility. Enough of this. Be still, foolish heart. But for the little girl, I could almost wish that it should cease to beat, to be no more alive to the anguish of disappointment. She reached London in April 1795. Her gloomiest forebodings were confirmed. Imlay had provided a furnished house for her and had considered her comforts, but his manner was changed. He was cold and constrained, and she felt the difference immediately. He was little with her, and business was, as of old, the excuse. According to Godwin, he had formed another connection with a young strolling actress. Life was thus even less bright in London than it had been in Paris. For her there were indeed worse things waiting at the gate of life than death, and she resolved by suicide to escape from them. This part of her story is very obscure. 
but it is certain that her suicidal intentions were so nearly carried into effect that she had written several letters containing her, as she thought, last wishes, and which were to be opened after all was over. There is no exact account of the manner in which she proposed to kill herself, nor of the means by which she was prevented. I only know, Godwin says, that Mr. Imlay became acquainted with her purpose at a moment when he was uncertain whether or no it was already executed, and that his feelings were roused by the intelligence. It was perhaps owing to his activity and representations that her life was at this time saved. She determined to continue to exist. This event sobered both Imlay and Mary. They saw the danger they were in, and the consequent necessity of forming a definite conclusion as to the nature of their future relations. They must either live together in perfect confidence, or else they must separate. My friend, my dear friend, she wrote him, examine yourself well. I am out of the question, for alas, I am nothing. And discover what you wish to do, what will render you most comfortable, or to be more explicit, whether you desire to live with me or part forever. When you can ascertain it, tell me frankly, I conjure you, for believe me, I have very involuntarily interrupted your peace. The determination could not be made in a hurry. In the meantime, Mary knew it would be unwise to remain idle, meditating upon her wrongs. Forgetfulness of self in active work appeared the only possible means of living through the period of uncertainty. Imlay had business in Norway and Sweden, which demanded the personal superintendence either of himself or of a trustworthy agent. He gave it in charge to Mary, and at the end of May she started upon this mission. That Imlay still looked upon her as his wife, and that his confidence in her was unlimited, is shown by the following document in which he authorizes her to act for him. May 19, 1795. Know all men by these presents that I, Gilbert Imlay, citizen of the United States of America, at present residing in London, do nominate, constitute, and appoint Mary Imlay, my best friend and wife, to take the sole management and direction of all my affairs and business, which I had placed in the hands of Mr. Elias Bachman, negotiant, Gottenburg, or in those of Monsieur Meeburg and Company, Copenhagen, desiring that she will manage and direct such concerns in such manner as she may deem most wise and prudent, for which this letter shall be a sufficient power, enabling her to receive all money or sums of money that may be recovered from Peter Ellison or his connections, whatever may be the issue of the trial now carrying on, instigated by Mr. Elias Bachman as my agent, for the violation of the trust which I had reposed in his integrity. Considering the aggravated distresses, the accumulated losses, and the damages sustained in consequence of the said Ellison's disobedience of my injunctions, I desire the said Mary Imlay will clearly ascertain the amount of such damages, taking first the advice of persons qualified to judge of the probability of obtaining satisfaction, or the means the said Ellison or his connections, 
who may be proved to be implicated in his guilt, may have, or power of being able to make restitution, and then commence a new prosecution for the same accordingly. Respecting the cargo of goods in the hands of Messrs. Meebourg and Company, Mrs. Imlay has only to consult the most experienced persons engaged in the disposition of such articles, and then, placing them at their disposal, act as she may deem right and proper. Thus confiding in the talent, zeal, and earnestness of my dearly beloved friend and companion, I submit the management of these affairs entirely and implicitly to her discretion, remaining most sincerely and affectionately hers truly G. Imlay, witness J. Samuel. Unfortunately for Mary, she was detained at Hull, from which town she was to set sail for about a month. She was thus unable to immediately still the memory of her sorrows. It is touching to see how, now that she could no longer doubt that Imlay was made of common clay, she began to find excuses for him. She represented to herself that it was her misfortune to have met him too late. Had she known him, before dissipation had enslaved him, there could have been none of this trouble. She was furthermore convinced that his natural refinement was not entirely destroyed, and that if he would but make the effort, he could overcome his grosser appetites. After almost a month of inactivity, the one bright spot in it being a visit to Beverly, the home of her childhood, she sailed for Sweden with Fanny and a maid as her only companions. Her letters from Sweden, Norway, and Denmark, with the more personal passages omitted, were published in a volume by themselves shortly after her return to England. Notice of them will find a more appropriate place in another chapter. All that is necessary here is the very portion which was then suppressed, but which Godwin later included with the letters to Imlay. The northern trip had at least this good result. It strengthened her physically. She was so weak when she first arrived in Sweden that the day she landed she fell fainting to the ground as she walked to her carriage. For a while everything fatigued her. The bustle of the people around her seemed flat, dull, and unprofitable. The civilities by which she was overwhelmed and the endeavors of the people she met to amuse her were fatiguing. Nothing for a while could lighten her deadly weight of sorrow, but by degrees, as her letters show, she improved. Pure air, long walks, and rides on horseback, rowing and bathing in days in the country had their beneficial effect, and she wrote to Imlay on July 4th, The rosy fingers of health already streak my cheeks, and I have seen a physical life in my eyes. After I have been climbing the rocks, that resembled the fond, credulous hopes of youth. But even a sound body cannot heal a broken heart. Mary could not throw off her troubles in a day. She, after a time, tried to distract her mind by entering into the amusements she had at first scorned, but it was often in vain. There was a change for the better, however, in her mental state, for though her grief was not completely cured, she at least voluntarily sought to recover her emotional equilibrium. She had at least one pleasure that helped to soften her cares. This was her love for the child, which, always great, 
was increased by Imlay's cruelty. The tenderness which he by his indifference repulsed, she now lavished upon Fanny. She seemed to feel that she ought to make amends for the fact that her child was, to all intents and purposes, fatherless. It so happened that at one time she was obliged to leave her child with a nurse for about a month. Business called her to Tunspike in Norway, and the journey would have been bad for Fanny, who was cutting her teeth. I felt more at leaving my child than I thought I should, she wrote to Imlay, and whilst at night I imagined every instant that I heard the half-formed sounds of her voice, I asked myself how I could think of parting with her forever, of leaving her thus helpless. Here, indeed, was a stronger argument against suicide than Christianity or its aftershine. This absence stimulated her motherly solicitude and heightened her sense of responsibility. In her appeals to Imlay to settle upon his future course in her regard, she now began to dwell upon her child as the most important reason to keep them together. He seems to have written to her regularly. At times she reproached him for not letting her hear from him, but at others she acknowledged the receipt of three and five letters in one morning. If these had been preserved, hers would not seem as important as they do now, for he gave her reason to suppose that he was anxious for a reunion and wrote in a style which she told him she may have deserved, but which she had not expected from him. She also referred to his admission that her words tortured him, and there was talk of a trip together to Switzerland. But at the same time, his proofs of indifference forced her to declare that she and pleasure had shaken hands. How often she breaks out in her agony, passing through the rocks I have thought, but for this child I would lay my head on one of them and never open my eyes again. The only particular in which he remained firm was his unwillingness to give a final decision in what to her was the one all-important matter. His vacillating behavior was heartless in the extreme. Her suspense became unbearable, and all her letters contained entreaties for him to relieve it. Finally, after allowing her to suffer three months of acute agony, he summoned up resolution enough to tell her he would abide by her decision. Her business in the North had been satisfactorily settled, for which she was, alas, to receive but poor thanks, and the welfare of the child having now become the pivot of her actions, she returned to England. From Dover she sent him a letter informing him that she was prepared once more to make his home hers. You say I must decide for myself. I have decided that it was most for the interest of my little girl and for my own comfort little as I expect, for us to live together, and I even thought that you would be glad some years hence, when the tumult of business was over, to repose in the society of an affectionate friend, unmark the progress of an interesting child, whilst endeavouring to be of use in the circle you at last resolve to rest in, for you cannot run about for ever. The result of this letter was that Imlay and Mary tried to retie the broken thread of their domestic relations. The latter went up to London, and they settled together in lodgings. It would have been better for her had she never seen him again. 
The fire of his love had burnt out. No power could rekindle it. His indifference was hard to bear, but so long as he assured her that he had formed no other attachment, she made no complaint. For Fanny's sake, she endured the new bitterness and found such poor comfort as she could in being with him. It was but too true that the constancy of her affection was the torment of her life. In spite of everything, she still loved him. Before long, however, she discovered through her servants that he was basely deceiving her. He was keeping up a separate establishment for a new mistress. Mary, following the impulse of the moment, went at once to this house where she found him. The particulars of their interview are not known, but her wretchedness during the night which followed maddened her. His perfidy hurt her more deeply than his indifference. Her cup of sorrow was filled to overflowing, and for the second time she made up her mind to fly from a world which held nothing but misery for her. It may be concluded that for the time being she was really mad. It will be remembered that troubles of a kindred nature had driven Mrs. Bishop to insanity. All the Wollstonecrafts inherited a peculiarly excitable temperament. Mary, had she not lost all self-control, would have been deterred from suicide, as she had been from thoughts of it in Sweden by her love for Fanny. But her grief was so great it drowned all memory and reason. The morning after this night of agony, she wrote to Imlay, I write you now on my knees, imploring you to send my child and the maid with blank to Paris to be consigned to the care of Madame blank, Rue blank, section de blank. Should they be removed, blank can give their direction. I shall make no comments on your conduct or any appeal to the world. Let my wrongs sleep with me. Soon, very soon, I shall be at peace. When you receive this, my burning head will be cold. I would encounter a thousand deaths rather than a night like the last. Your treatment has thrown my mind into a state of chaos, yet I am serene. I go to find comfort, and my only fear is that my poor body will be insulted by an endeavor to recall my hated existence but I shall plunge into the Thames where there is the least chance of my being snatched from the death I seek. God bless you. May you never know by experience what you have made me endure. Should your sensibility ever awake, remorse will find its way to your heart, and in the midst of business and sensual pleasures I shall appear before you the victim of your deviation from rectitude. Then, she left her house to seek refuge in the waters of the river. She went first to Battersea Bridge, but it was too public for her purpose. She could not risk a second frustration of her designs. There was no place in London where she could be unobserved. With the calmness of despair, she hired a boat and rode to Putney. It was a cold, foggy November day, and by the time she arrived at her destination, the night had come and the rain fell in torrents. An idea occurred to her. If she wet her clothes thoroughly before jumping into the river, her weight would make her sink rapidly. She walked up and down, up and down the bridge in the driving rain. The fog enveloped the night in a gloom as impenetrable as that of her heart. 
No one passed to interrupt her preparations. At the end of half an hour, satisfied that her end was accomplished, she leaped from the bridge into the water below. Despite her soaked clothing, she did not sink at once. In her desperation, she pressed her skirts around her. Then she became unconscious. She was found, however, before it was too late. Vigorous efforts were made to restore life, and she was brought back to consciousness. She had met with the insult she most dreaded, and her disappointment was keen. Her failure only increased her determination to destroy herself. Imlay, whose departure to his other house Mary construed into abandonment of her, made in spite of this letter many inquiries as to her health and tranquillity, repeated offers of pecuniary assistance, and at the request of mutual acquaintances even went to see her. But a show of interest was not what she wanted, and her thanks for it was the assurance that before long she would be where he would be saved the trouble of either thinking or talking of her. Fortunately, Mr. Johnson and her other friends interfered actively in her behalf, and by their arguments and representations prevailed upon her to relinquish the idea of suicide. Through their kindness, the fever which consumed her was somewhat abated. Her temporary madness over, she again remembered her responsibility as a mother, and realized that true courage consists in facing a foe and not in flying from it. Of the change in her intentions for the future, she informed Imlay. Godwin makes the incredible statement that Imlay, refusing to break off his new connection, though he declared it to be of a temporary nature, Mary proposed that she should live in the same house with his mistress. In this way, he would not be separated from his child, and she would quietly wait the end of his intrigue. Imlay, according to Godwin, consented to her suggestion, but afterwards thought better of it and refused. There is not a word in her letters to confirm this extraordinary story. It is simply impossible that at one moment she should have been driven to suicide by the knowledge that he had a mistress, and that at the next she should take a step which was equivalent to countenancing his conduct. It is more rational to conclude that Godwin was misinformed than to believe this. Towards the end of November, Imlay went to Paris with the woman for whom he had sacrificed wife and child. Mary felt that the end had now finally come, as is seen in the few letters which still remain. Once the first bitterness of her disappointment had been mastered, the old tenderness revived, and she renewed her excuses for him. My affection for you is rooted in my heart, she wrote fondly and sadly. I know you are not what you now seem, nor will you always act and feel as you now do, though I may never be comforted by the change. Writing to him, however, was more than she could bear. Each letter reopened the wound he had inflicted and inspired her with a wild desire to see him. She therefore wisely concluded that all correspondence between them must cease. In December 1795, while he was still in Paris, she bade him her last farewell, though in so doing she was, as she says, piercing her own heart. She refused to hold further communication with him or to receive his money, but she told him she would not interfere in anything he might wish to do for Fanny. Here it may be said that though Imlay declared that a certain sum should be settled upon the latter, 
not a shilling of it was ever paid. Mary saw him once or twice afterwards. When he came to London again, Godwin says that she could not restrain herself from making another effort and desiring to see him once more. During his absence, her affection had led her to make numberless excuses for his conduct, and she probably wished to believe that his present connection was, as he represented it, purely of a casual nature. To this application, she observed that he returned no other answer except declaring with unjustifiable passion that he would not see her. They did meet, however, but their meeting was accidental. Imlay was one day paying a visit to Mr. Christie, who had returned to London, and with whom he had business relations. He was sitting in the parlor when Mary called. Mrs. Christie, hearing her voice and probably fearing an embarrassing scene, hurried out to warn her of his presence and to advise her not to come into the room. But Mary, not heeding her, entered fearlessly, and with Fanny by the hand went up and spoke to Imlay. They retired, it seems, to another room, and he then promised to see her again and indeed to dine with her at her lodgings on the following day. He kept his promise, and there was a second interview, but it did not lead to a reconciliation. The very next day she went into Berkshire, where she spent the month of March with her friend Mrs. Cotton. She never again made the slightest attempt to see him or to hear from him. There was a limit even to her affection and forbearance. One day, after her return to town, she was walking along the new road when Imley passed her on horseback. He jumped off his horse and walked with her for a little distance. This was the last time they met. From that moment, he passed completely out of her life. End of chapter 9